0: Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, where we discuss news, views and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. The United Nations has long been seen as an organisation of international cooperation, and every country tries to use it to legitimise their actions and views on a global stage. And perhaps none is more successful at this than China. China. Here to discuss how China is using its influence to assert itself within the United Nations is Courtney Fung, Associate Professor in Security Studies and Criminology at Macquarie University and a Scholar-in-Residence at Asia Society Australia. Thank you for joining me Courtney.
1: Thanks so much Matt for having me on the podcast.
0: So can we begin with a bit of an overview? What role does China have at the UN or what role do they perceive themselves as having might be a better question. And how important is it to the country's push for global influence?
1: Thanks, Matt, for the question. So China maintains a permanent seat at the UN Security Council, which is the apex body for dealing with issues of international peace and security. So all of the political hotspots, all of the thorniest issues, questions of how we handle COVID-19, HIV, AIDS, women, peace and security all of these issues will move through the Security Council in one way, shape or another, which means that states have to engage with China because this permanent seat comes with a veto. Since 2016, China has been on the rise as the number two largest contributor to the UN regular budget. So that also has given China a certain authority to discuss the impact of being able to fund the UN and that this is the baseline for the functioning of global governance, right? And we also know that China is looking to increase its staffing presence, i.e. its own PRC contributions to the international civil service across a number of bodies. And we also know that China has been making efforts to insert PRC-specific language, like, for example, shared future, community of common destiny of mankind, win-win cooperation, mutual benefit China has been pushing to insert this type of language across a number of UN bodies, whether it be language moving through the Security Council, the UN Human Rights Council, etc., on issues of Afghanistan's peace, Africa's means to development, or questions of material and outer space. So China really is engaging with this United Nations space as a platform to help legitimize and elevate China's own particular perspectives, On global governance and international politics. And this has really taken off under President Xi Jinping's leadership. He really has seen the United Nations in particular as a cornerstone for the way that China can engage with the world. And he really is looking to see this system adapt itself to this evolving global political and economic dynamics as he talks about this. And we take this to be a reference to sort of China's rise and U.S. decline in the multilateral system. And he's become clearer over the last couple of years that, again, and I'll quote, that China is now in a position to, quote, be leading the reform of the global governance system as China is, quote, moving closer to center stage. So really sort of seeing this increasing role for Beijing to help modify and maneuver the United Nations as a tool and as a means to sort of direct global governance. The real takeaway from all of this, though, is that China is looking to cement its own status and its own position within international politics, because really there's no other body that has near universal membership and practically global reach like the United Nations.
0: But China isn't alone in how it's using its influence, and it seems to be staying within the rules that are set out in the UN but it's just more successful than other countries in doing so. Is is that a correct perception then?
1: I mean, I don't know if I would say that China is more successful than other states. I think there's been a lot more attention put to Beijing and what it's doing in the UN system over the last couple of years. Really, over the last sort of five, ten years, there's been a lot more interest in trying to understand how China relates all of its global public goods which you know we've had 10 years of the belt and road initiative and how that's been integrated into various UN initiatives so for example how BRI relates to the 2030 sustainable development goals studies have gone through trying to calculate and tabulate the number of MOUs that are signed between UN agencies and other Chinese agencies, specifically relating to BRI, for example. But I would agree with you that China is like a lot of other states that looks to pursue its own national interests within the system. I think the difference is that Beijing has made a rhetorical commitment to seeing the United Nations, its bodies, the principles of international law as a cornerstone to the way that global governance should work. By no means should we take that ...as saying that China is permanently restrained by the United Nations and international law. I don't think we should interpret that enthusiasm, that rhetorical commitment in that way. But I think we should understand that unlike, for example, the United States... ...when you might get a Trump administration that comes in or a Republican administration... ...and they have less interest in pursuing U.S. national interests through the United Nations compared to perhaps a Biden administration or a Democratic-led administration, we're not gonna see that variation with China. And I think we are in a phase of real policy experimentation for the way that Beijing seeks to adapt the language, the rules, the unspoken, unwritten practices that help the United Nations work. And I think we are in that space now of being able to watch that happen through a variety of arenas and a variety of functions. Again, looking at language, funding, staffing, voting, for example.
0: On the subject of voting, traditionally, China has used its veto power rather sparingly, preferring to instead abstain from votes when they object to something that is being done. But in the past decade, there's been much more of a willingness to exercise its veto, and that's often in partnership with Russia or in coordination. So what is your take on this change in strategy?
1: Sure. I mean, I think there's a few things to note. Exactly as you say, Many times the Chinese vetoes are cast in coordination with Russia, but you're exactly right that it's not one for one. So by my last count, since the People's Republic of China assumed the China seat following Resolution 2758 that removed the Republic of China as assuming the China seat and moved in the People's Republic of China in October of 1971, the PRC has cast 19 vetoes. Russia in that same time period has cast 46. So clearly, they're not one for one. But Mm -hmm. we really do see up until basically the last decade, China had cast ballpark two vetoes a decade since 1971, being very, very cautious. In the last decade or so, we've seen a real shift, in part, I think, because China has made it clear that it wants to draw a very firm line against being perceived as supporting foreign imposed regime change i.e. forcible or coerced removal of a political leadership of a state by outside actors. And China has expressed concern that there is almost the specter of regime change on moving through the UN. Concerns that the United Nations might be dethroning Libya's Muammar Gaddafi. There might be concern that they're looking to try and remove Syrian authorities. They've called out that there should not be any seeking of foreign-imposed regime change in relation to the DPRK. So I think we have to remember that there is that, and I think drawing that hard line of making sure that the United Nations does not engage in foreign-imposed regime change has been part of the motivator for the 10 vetoes alone that we've seen on the Syria crisis. So that's been a major change in the way that China engages with the veto, because we have to also remember that once you cast a veto, you've sent a signal that you're willing to stop motions of global governance efforts to try and resolve issues. This then sends a signal to states that have alternate platforms, like the United States, like other European players at the council, that could, for example, go it alone, establish coalitions of the willing, rely upon NATO or the EU. You send a signal to these players that the UN may not have the utility that they thought it could. So that is kind of risky for Beijing in the sense that China doesn't have an alternate platform, and it does want to try and keep this platform functioning well because the veto allows it to go toe-to-toe. So kind of counterintuitive. And I think the last thing to point out as you ask, like, what are the conditions that have driven this move towards the veto in this last decade? I think we also see this as part of the fallout between Western players and China in the sense that, you know, a veto will be threatened. And I think we now are seeing a phase where states are willing to say, well, fine, cast the veto and you bear the public opprobrium, you bear the fallout for stopping solutions. And that is a sign, again, arguably of a very unhealthy Security Council working
0: set of conditions. So how has their relationship, their coordination, whatever you want to call it, with Russia and the influence of Moscow changed at the UN and changed what China is doing at the UN? The more that the invasion of the Ukraine continues, Moscow is losing its influence there. So do you believe that China would be recalculating its position either out of desire to distance itself or necessity?
1: This is a great question, because I think there is this sort of belief that somehow China and Russia have formed this axis in the UN Security Council. And I think in part, you know, again, the states together last year in early February reaffirmed their own high level strategic partnership. But this partnership is meant to be underlined with principles about territorial integrity, non-interference with internal affairs, sovereignty, all of these things that are very often co-located with Chinese core interests, right? But I think we have to also recognize that this is a pragmatic relationship, at least within the UN space, and these two states have to make sense of what the balance of their interests are as this Ukraine war drags on, and as the fallout of the Russian invasion of Ukraine continues. So I think it's very important to note that the most popular vote that China has cast regarding Ukraine resolutions has actually been abstention votes. The initial UN General Assembly votes condemning the Russian invasion, China was very happy to abstain. And you could interpret that as sort of seeing that China was willing to free ride on what they knew would be a Russian rejection. And so therefore, it was easier to abstain and not have to bear direct cost for co-voting with Russia. We see again the same thing that China cast abstention votes quite regularly on this question of the Russian invasion into Ukraine at the UN Human Rights Council. We did see a couple of co-votes along with Russia, again regarding IAEA resolutions or on questions of the International Court of Justice's role in addressing the Russian aggression and calling for Russia to immediately halt its military actions. So only the Chinese and Russian jurists opposed this ICJ order, for example. But I think, again, the real trend has really been consistently in the General Assembly and the Security Council that China has moved to abstention. And I think, in part, it recognizes that its own individual state interests aren't served as being painted as completely 100% aligned with Russia. There's simply too much on the line on this particular issue and the way that it's been constructed in global governance. Now, I do think the one thing, though, to take into account, I'm just bouncing off your question on the veto, is we can look at other ways that China has tried to offer support to Russia. And I think one thing that has really caught the attention of EU officials has been the way that the PRC, International Civil Servant, that is heading the Food and Agricultural Organization, which is one of the key bodies in terms of addressing and understanding how international food aid can get around the world. And of course, Ukraine has been a global food aid breadbasket up until the invasion. We can see that this PRC international civil servant who heads the agency has been very cautious in not actually condemning the Russian invasion. So this official has been keen to talk about second order effects of sanctions, has been keen to condemn sanctions for impeding the movement of international food aid. These are rhetorical positions that are very close to the Chinese state's position. But he's not been keen to talk about the Russian invasion itself. And I think that's been seen by observers, by those that are working in this space, as a sign of, again, implicit closeness in ways of offering support, but this is again falling short of actually voting. But again, it's trying to shield condemnation, right, in the way that we frame and understand what the conflict's about and what the outcomes and the effects are for food aid and the food aid crisis, frankly.
0: So can we talk now about the influence that China has within the UN? I'm interested in how they go about courting votes, especially amongst developing nations. And I know that part of this is done within the UN framework. The other is done as part of the broader international relations arena. What is your take on that? How effective are they at courting votes amongst other nations? And what is the outcome of that?
1: So that's a great question. You know, we need to remember that China has the largest number of embassies and consulates in the world now. They've got the broadest diplomatic footprint. And I think to Beijing's credit, when they have determined that this is an issue of real importance for China's foreign policy. They're willing to harness and organize this network and apply it. We have to remember though that the successful cases are outliers in the sense that they are well reported. We all understand that they are massive successes and I don't want to give us the impression that China has this massive success Across all issues, all the time. So, with that big caveat, we can talk about one particular case. Again, we can take the example of the Food and Agricultural Organization campaign a couple of years ago. In this particular example, we saw that the reporting noted that China was able to harness its diplomatic network, working bilaterally across capitals around the world to explain why China's candidate was the best, to organize its sets of incentives, you know, diplomatic carrots and sticks allegedly helping to pay off certain countries' types of debt or facilitating holidays to Beijing for their officials, for example. And again, being very prepared when it came down to the actual day to vote. Essentially, PRC diplomats were able to be in all places that were needed within the voting stations in Rome. And so very organized in terms of making sure that those votes that were promised to Beijing actually were cast for Beijing, and interpreting the understandings about secrecy, privacy, and voting in ways that I think some states found quite surprising. According to the reporting done out of Foreign Policy, they noted that, you know, Chinese diplomats went as far as asking to see photographs of the secret ballots that had been cast to make sure that these votes were actually going down as supporting Beijing. Wow. This is very interesting, right? Because it goes to a much bigger question about understanding what the rules of the game are and understanding which rules of the game can be interpreted and be reinterpreted, right? And you can follow this ongoing debate at the FAO discussing this particular election and this sort of almost election hygiene, that the way that it's now being discussed, right? But this is one of these high points for really efficient, dogged, well-coordinated diplomacy against, again, a campaign led by other Western states that was less organized, less dogged, and frankly, less efficient. So we have to remember the overall context, right? But this has also been happening against a move over the last couple of decades to try and center the global South, South South-South solutions, South-South discussion forums, South-South cooperation on a variety of functional issues from development to human rights to um, managing climate change, and China's real push to frame the global south as offering solutions and being the key stakeholder that needs to be consulted away from the global north. And China has worked very hard to maintain the title of the G77 plus China. It wants to make sure that its commitment to the global south is well recognized and well understood, and that despite China's economic rise, it will always be a developing state. So I think we have to recognize the very slow movements over the last decade, the integration of various regional initiatives, for example, with 54 African states and the African Union and various subsidiary regional security institutions within the African continent, as an example of how these are all harnessed and then can be used in support of various UN initiatives that China wants to pursue. Again, This is all with a huge caveat that these are the success cases. We can read research done by Lina Ben-Abdallah, Dawn Murphy, that highlights the variation in China's success in sort of trying to use these multiple platforms and to trying to drive policy upwards at the global level.
0: If I can talk now about UN peacekeepers, China contributes more of those than the rest of the permanent members of the UN Security Council combined. And if I understand correctly, that's A relatively recent trend as well. So can you tell me about its peacekeeping efforts? What are they trying to achieve by being so active in here? And how does it play into China's international agenda?
1: So China's involvement in peacekeeping starts off in sort of the early 1980s, when China finally cast its first abstention votes regarding peacekeeping. So, you know, Beijing's first decade at the UN Security Council included no voting. China just did not engage. It was you know, railing against hegemony and Western powers, and it just did not engage and had obviously relatively limited foreign interests at that time. By the 1980s, you see China start to cast abstention votes. By the late 1980s, China makes its first deployment in 1988, going off to UNTAC in Cambodia and deploying ballpark about 800 engineering troops. And this trend is really the same type of trend that China held on to in terms of troop deployment through around about 2013. So China was committed to deploying the medical teams, the logisticians, and the engineering units that provide the backbone. So not the tooth, but the tail to a peacekeeping mission. You can't have a mission out in the field without these units providing core functions. And China had really carved out a space for itself as this sort of enabler asset contributor. We see a shift in 2013, where China eventually starts to deploy combat troops. These are now troops that have to actually execute the Chapter 7 non-consensual part of peacekeeping mandates. Some peacekeeping mandates are filed under Chapter 7, and the UN has to essentially enforce peace, engage in robust peacekeeping. The exchange of live fire, protection of civilians can occur with live fire, et cetera. So that's a major shift. So I just want to sort of put a pin in that with that setup. All of this has happened, you know, where the last couple of decades, China has been going back and forth between itself and France. And eventually it now has become the leading troop contributor out of the P5. And you're exactly right, deploying more than the P5 combined. But I think we have to remember a few things, that peacekeeping itself is a tool for Beijing. So it allows China to get very valuable real life Combat related experience, as much as we can understand that peacekeeping might occur in a combat related setting. There's a whole set of practical functions that you test domestically made weapons in the field. You get to quote unquote battle test some of these PLA assets. Simply learning from what other units are doing so you can examine what their procedures are, these units that come from all around the world. You're picking up new technology. We have to remember that China has had a very limited set of battle-tested experiences. Its last hot war was in 1979 against Vietnam. And so the ability to go out and actually figure out, for example, at headquarters, how you take a politically-minded mandate and transpose that into a set of concept of operations and then get that into a field plan is itself a skill that Chinese colonels are understandably keen to learn. All of this is going on as a learning exercise and also basically a PR exercise for China to really show that it walks the walk and it talks the talk of a developing state that stands shoulder to shoulder with other developing states as they seek to establish peace and security. And so you can read a number of press articles where Chinese media have noted praise from various senior UN officials for China's peacekeeping record and the like. But the reason why I note all of this is that we have to remember that peacekeeping is not always a consensual welcomed activity. And sometimes peacekeepers themselves can come under attack. And China has now sustained its first combat deaths since 1979 via UN peacekeeping in missions in Mali and South Sudan in 2016. And this was a very difficult period for Beijing. And actually it's driven... China's own foreign policy responses to peacekeeping. So, if we can think about funding peacekeeping, China is the second-largest funder. They obviously have a huge peacekeeping footprint. We also can look at change you're trying to drive with policy. And I think following these combat-related deaths, these peacekeepers were killed in the field, has driven the way that China now engages. And part of its policy engagement is to talk about the need for peacekeeper safety and security. And they're talking about it. In a way that really flows from Beijing's foreign policy views. So while other states talk about peacekeeper safety and security is having to understand when force is used against a peacekeeper, how can a peacekeeper respond with force? The way that China talks about peacekeeper safety and security is to talk about the need to have a committed host state. So if you take on a peacekeeping mission, you have to be prepared to offer medical support in case it's needed. If you are the host state, you have to be prepared to support the mission and keep enforcing your consent for the mission to be there. China talks about the need for better medical support in the field, the need to have better training and equipment so that soldiers can better take care of themselves. But these are seen again as sort of very passive responses, pre-training political management. This is not really addressing the question about what happens if there's live fire and you have to shoot back and you have to maybe escalate with force. That part is something that China's a lot quieter about. And I think the interesting thing to track in this space is that China now is looking to organize its own group of friends mechanism to keep driving discussion forward. It's very keen to sort of populate its views and move these through at the UN Security Council. So we've seen whenever China takes on the rotating lead of the UN Security Council presidency. China has raised the peacekeeper safety and security issue, and it has made sure that resolutions come out on this, keeping this issue in focus, but also keeping China's lead on this issue in focus. So I think that's something for us to track over time.
0: They sound like very effective members of the UN. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing, I guess, depends on who is asking the question. So um, one thing that I find rather strange, though, is There's a willingness that the UN shows to intervene in countries to resolve conflict or to protect human rights, when China itself has a kind of questionable human right record when it comes to ethnic minorities within its border. So how do these sort of conflicts play out within the UN? Does China try and guide the UN towards resolutions, decisions, discussions that they like about those? Or do they try and stop the conversations altogether? How does it play out?
1: Many things that go through the United Nations are up for hot debate. So questions about what are appropriate human rights responses? What are appropriate boundaries of human rights? How do we prioritize which human rights over others um, are going to be things under hot debate? And a state like China has taken a clearer angle on human rights over the decades. It's become clearer now that the way that China talks about universal human rights is to respond by pointing out that actually it's a story of relativism. These universal human rights have to be relative to each country's unique historical, social, cultural, political, and economic and security conditions. So really, once you start to emphasize relative, you are now actually challenging universal, right? So it's a completely different frame in which China engages and responds to questions of universal human rights, which is, you know, the baseline of your question. I should note that China is not alone. There's a large number of states that see this perspective as very useful. I think equally concerned that you have human rights bodies pushing against what they see as their right to state sovereignty and the way that they manage their domestic affairs. So China is not a vanguard of one. It is arguably in a group of many. But I think the interesting thing to understand is how China injects its views on human rights into the system. And I think, again, we can see this rather successful management of the way that China engages, for example, with the UN Human Rights Council. So there was a lot of interest a couple of years ago that China had secured one of the five seats that determines the special rapporteurs that work on behalf of specialist human rights concerns. So special rapporteur for the rights of those with disabilities, special rapporteur for the right to a clean and healthy environment, a special rapporteur for the aging. And so there was interest at the time that China had managed to secure one of these five seats that determine A, the special rapporteur's agendas, and B, who gets to be a special rapporteur. Um, So far, I haven't seen much more reporting on this. But again, this push to try and take over these technical positions is something that I think we need to pay attention to. I think we also see the way that China is massaging these informal means of managing the way that human rights are understood. So for example, states go through a universal periodic review. This happens on a routine schedule. States know when their turn is coming up. There's been success that China has found in terms of making sure that they manage which types of representatives come in and talk about China. And so for example, the use of these government-run NGOs and finding their staffers to come in and speak about China's human rights records in ways that are very praiseworthy. Um, we've seen this in particular in the way that the question of Hong Kong and the national security law has come up in the UN Human Rights Council in the last couple of years, and that China's been very keen to sort of use this agenda management, speaker management, to help sort of bolster China's own official position. So whether that's bringing certain speakers to the fore or preventing certain speakers from getting out and actually joining them for discussion in Geneva and elsewhere. And I think, again, we also have to pay attention to the broader trend of all of this vote management. The question of human rights in Xinjiang has been one of those very contentious issues, to say the least, where China has fought very hard to manage the voting margins, to make sure that when there's a resolution that China sees unfairly challenging China's position on Xinjiang, that it will try and counter another resolution with a larger number of votes. Again, to try and emphasize that the international community is not defined by quote-unquote West-only perspectives. And I will note, the most interesting thing to me is that even after these votes are cast, China still spends time correcting votes that it sees as wrong. And so most recently we saw statements by the Fijian Ministry of External Affairs noting that it wanted to change its vote, that it recognized had been incorrect on a resolution regarding Xinjiang that was condemning China. So I think we, again, can sort of recognize that when these issues are seen to be important, Beijing is able to invest resources and time in terms of managing a whole number of issues, of which, again, human rights is really right at the apex.
0: So if I could ask a final question then, we've got all these examples of how China is using its influence within the UN pushing their agenda and how other countries are reacting to it, uh, whether good or bad. But does any of this really matter? They're very good at using the system. They are better than other countries in some circumstances. But isn't that what the system is there for? Isn't that a whole purpose of it so that you can have these big debates and so that everyone's view is represented or heard?
1: You know, Matt, I think on that last comment, I have to agree with you. I mean, global governance is meant to be global. And Mm. if states have different opinions, if diplomats have to represent these different opinions by voting, by discourse, by the rhetoric they bring, by the arguments to sustain funding for the UN, then yes, you know, you should expect there to be some debate. It goes back to this old adage, right? Don't hate the player, hate the game. If you're not of the same persuasion as Chinese diplomats regarding the fact that universal human rights may not be all that universal, if you don't have the same views about accountability, equality, as being baseline principles of global politics, then really you need to be able to find ways to make sure that your country is engaged in this UN system. And so I think, again, as much as you and I might have discussed today these success cases of China's rise in the UN system, we also have to remember that China's ability to maneuver is also shaped by other states' engagement. And so certainly, as we saw in the first flush of the Trump administration, when we could cite examples of, you know, when the Trump administration claimed that there was this, quote, false song of globalism, and so they basically tried to find ways to withhold funding, for example, out of the UN Population Fund, when the US under the Trump administration threatened to depart various global governance bodies, for example, the WHO or the Universal Postal Union. Of course, they returned to the WHO, but we have to note that. And also, when they actually seek to completely withdraw from these institutions, so for example, pulling out of UNESCO, the UN Human Rights Council, for example, all of these permit space for states with alternate views to take up that space. When you leave a political vacuum, other players that are consistently invested in the UN system will come out and they will seek to fill it. And I think a state like China that to a certain extent can fulfill the rhetoric with financing, with staffing contributions, with some type of policy goal to align BRI to various UN initiatives, you are starting to see that shift. Now, the last thing I just wanna point out that I think sometimes For those of us that do live in the global north, we think that in a lot of ways the UN doesn't affect our day. But there really isn't any issue, whether it's to do with technology, the environment, education, that the UN doesn't have some ripple effect over. And so I think, again, it's really a space for us all as sort of, you know, citizens to really be thinking about and engaging with as we go about our day. And we think about where we want the world to be going over the next
0: 5, 10, 15, 20 years. Courtney Fung, thank you very much for your time today.
1: Oh, thanks so much, Matt, for having me.
0: That was Courtney Fung, Associate Professor in Security Studies and Criminology at Macquarie University and a scholar in residence with Asia Society Australia. And you have been listening to Asia Rising, a podcast from La Trobe, Asia, if you like this podcast, please subscribe or leave a review. You can follow Latrobe Asia on LinkedIn or Twitter, where we are at Latrobe Asia and Courtney Fung is at Courtney Fung. This podcast was recorded in Melbourne, Australia at Latrobe University on the traditional lands of the Wurundjeri people. I'm Matt Smith and thanks for listening.